Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Ah! Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcons, Thunder Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello, people. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. <clears throat> now, we've got a lot to talk about this week. We're doing our final week of MIFF coverage. MIFF has wrapped the Melbourne International Film Festival to great success. It was a wonderful festival. We're very glad to have online. We're going to be talking Sun Children and Pickpocket, and then later into the podcast, Moon 66 Questions, Stray, Le Civil, and Rock Bottom Riser. We're going to be talking a little bit about Blue Lotus and Chapawaite, a couple of series streaming on Stan and Netflix, respectively. I'm sorry, the other way around. Uh, before we get into that, though, we want to talk about the big news of the week, which is Spider-Man. The Spider-Man trailer dropped. I don't care. I'm sorry. I know it's the big I, film news. I, I don't care. I didn't watch it. My it's policy, not, yeah, like, my, my policy, which I occasionally break, but typically stick to these days, is that if there's a trailer for a film I'm sold on, uh, that's out, I won't bother to watch it because all the trailer can do is give away some of the surprises at that point. And if it's something that I don't think I'll watch, but, you know, maybe, or like a Marvel movie where it's like close to no interest, I'll watch the trailer. But now, it, um, the, you know, everyone's buzzing about this this trailer and I just couldn't even be bothered to click it. Like, the Marvel enthusiasm has reached such a level it's oh, like, it's so lead into this movie. It just took so long that everyone was like, "This trailer has to exist," and the trailer is a weird event in itself. They it call it a teaser trailer. They call it a teaser trailer, and it's three minutes long. I don't understand. How is it teasing anything? Is it three minutes? Yeah, yeah. Because if it's a teaser trailer, they can release a feature trailer, and a follow-up feature trailer, and a feature trailer subsequent to the actual movie. But this does have elements to it. And by that, I mean performers that intrigue me. I won't say more in case you don't want to watch the trailer, Chris, but it may, well, that, that's enough for me to want to see this movie. I honestly, I think everyone's going to know about this stuff. So maybe we can discuss it. <laughs> I, I mean, I know I haven't seen the trailer. I, I knew before the trailer what the hook of this movie is. Um, but the buzz about uh, Shang-Chi seems to be pretty positive, which I'm... It, a lot of people are saying it's a pretty middling Marvel movie. I've heard that too. It looks middling, honestly. It doesn't look that good. Right. It looks rote. Yeah, and which means it's a good Marvel film, right? A middling Marvel movie is really good because most yeah, of them right. are bad, right? The, the thing about Spider-Man, um, it's such nostalgia bait. This whole, like, everything's a cinematic universe, everything's a reference to the thing you liked when you were a kid. It's been 20 years since Spider-Man 2, so it's time to bring back some of the villains. But, I don't know. To me, that, like, I'm a huge fan of Spider-Man 2. Might be my overall favourite spider-man movie this apparently is an amalgamation of um the raimi spider-man movies and the plot of enter the spider-verse which is the other best spider-man movie um it wasn't like, by disney oh, they saw this and thought oh wait a minute we should do something actually yeah. good what are some things people like about spider-man okay it's these two previous films we didn't make all right so let's borrow some aspects of that to me it's only cheapening spider-man 2 to bring back the villain, um, you know, like the whole point, I don't know, spoilers for a 20 year old movie, uh, you know, the, the point of the ending there was like a heroic sacrifice, redeeming the villain, like bringing him back to be a villain in a multiverse to me just seems like a dumb idea. I'm sure it'll be better executed than that. But like, then again, I was sure that the Emperor of Palpatine being in Rise of Skywalker wouldn't be as stupid as it sounded. And there we go. You see, I like the multiverse approach. I mean, I remember 
I still have more nostalgia and joy from recollection of watching Spider-Man 2002 than I have for any of the other Marvel films. And I'll say that for Spider-Man 2, even though I do prefer the first Spider-Man film, a great fight to have there. I like that we can, I, I don't think it's actually cheap to bring it back as part of multiverse. I do not believe, I don't believe this will retcon or otherwise can retcon the old films. Uh, my general philosophy of this is that it can, they, they can be enjoyed and viewed in isolation. I'm, if it's good for any measure, then it's worth it for me to see him in this. I'm semi looking forward to this. I can't get too excited. I'm more excited for what we're going to talk about this week, honestly. Um, yeah. Um, the, the problem with the multiverse thing is it's it, this is all about Doctor Strange, right? Yeah. Interesting that Doctor Strange, the new film, is being directed by Sam Raimi. I wonder if his making that was part of a way to have him part of the family and, you know, tacitly approving of the using of his characters in the Spider-Man movies that they're not letting him direct Strange. But that just seems to be furthering the thing of Peter Parker not standing on his own and being back up to other MCU heroes, replacing Iron Man. And he, he does have a particular arc given um, his age trajectory and where he is he's not the consummate i've saved the world several times i get it others are he's but like to, 18 to me that just illustrates the problem of these films where everything has to be huge all the time and they're like oh he's the the kid so he doesn't you know why can't he just be friendly neighborhood spider-man who's a teenager who's basically stands alone because the point of spider-man is how much he he carries on his shoulders Spider-Man is way more effective if he stands as a hero in his own. Because Marvel has decided that being a a loner teenager is no longer cool because angsty teenagers are bad and we're just all part of a family. So, you know, everybody needs to be brought into the fold. Mm -hmm. Avengers family. Uh, Everyone has family now, so it's it's sad. Family's good. Uh, And we don't know if Spider-Man will be good. That'll be coming out in a few months, maybe. Um, the Matrix other... is coming out at the same time, and that still hasn't doesn't have a trailer. Where's the outcry about that? I don't need a trailer for the Matrix. I don't want a trailer for the Matrix. I'm just going to go see. It. I rewatched the trilogy a couple of weekends ago. Um, Society really did revolutions and reloaded dirty. They're both fantastic films, as is of course the first one. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty keen to rewatch the sequels. Um, maybe we can talk about that in a few months when we may be about to watch the Matrix. Maybe. Uh, I'll, I'll see. Gladly. Uh, the, the velocity, it, it's so philosophically dense and interesting and debatable. And I like that. It, it didn't give easy direct answers and, and easy tie-ups tie when people were demanding it. So cool. And it was different to the original. Each was successful ones with different films. Anyway, we'll talk about the Matrix down the line. Um, the other big film news of the week is just breaking the past 24 hours is that uh, it looks like there's prospective legislation as regards the security law in Hong Kong that films are both in the future and retrospectively may longer be available to keep in line with this law. We don't, nothing's been passed as of yet, but we can continue to cover it as it develops. It will be passed though, because it's a proposed law where there's essentially no opposition. It will be passed. But yeah, it gives the right to retroactively ban films that have previously, or by the, the former administration, been approved. So it's a terrible day for Hong Kong's film history. You know, they've existed for a long time independent and, and up until I guess that the change started really happening strongly around the 2000. But Hong Kong used to be, of course, 
the main film industry of China, essentially, because they existed without restrictions and exported a lot more content um, and made some real classics. So it's a real shame. Yeah, we believe films are there to be watched. So we'll, we'll continue this with the story as it develops. Uh, before we get into the Melbourne International Film Festival and Sun Children to note the news of the week, the Indian Film Festival in Melbourne is streaming currently until the 30th of August. The West End Film Festival is screening and online until the 31st. Um, starting today is both the Adelaide Film Festival for Youth and Cinefest Oz over in Perth. Um, from the 1st of September, the Irish Film Festival will be streaming online to the 12th of September, joining a number of festivals that will be streaming online in September, including Queer Screen and the Steam Underground Film Festival, which kicks off um, from the weekend of August, September 3rd to 5th with the Take 48 Filmmaking Competition. We've done it in previous years, but I've done both past years, so as Chris, it's a lot of fun. We recommend you do it, and you can still register to do it online and be part of the um, program come when the festival begins streaming from the 9th to the 26th of September. Um, in non, uh, also in Carriage Works, the Invocation Trilogy and some digital installations which are viewable online were, were initially viewable over at Carriage Works in Everly um, will be available from this Saturday, something to check out. The next Kino Sydney, they took a break in August, but they're coming up on the 14th of September. It'll be online, so you can still get your flicks in. And you can get details of all those festivals and more up at festivest.com. Notably, there's been a number, in addition to coverage we've made in the last week, a number of festivals have postponed, including the Armenian Festival, while a number of festivals, uh, the Jewish International Film Festival has gone to, on to, from October to February, as has the Canberra International Film Festival. Um, the Canberra run of the Korean Film Festival was postponed to October, and the Taiwan Film Festival has gone fully online. So the pen current pandemic is continuing to have quite an impact on the festival scene, and we'll bring you more coverage of that in coming weeks. Um, you're listening to Film Fight Club and 2SCR with Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans of Ratneru. The next film we're talking about is Sun Children, which screened as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. It is an Iranian film. Um, uh, in the great Iranian, tradition of Iranian cinema, a young boy and his friends who are hired by some shady guys to dig up a treasure under a school. There's, a, there's more to the plot, but I think it's a fair outline. This has this is a strange fusion of both the Goonies 80s era children's films and heist flicks like Gone in 60 Seconds. We've seen both of these sorts of genres happen in isolation, but to see elements thereof fused together is quite novel and interesting to me, which was enough for, for me to see this film in and of itself. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say it's so much of a heist movie. It just has sort of has the elements of it, you know, because I felt like what, what becomes more um, pronounced is the kind of inspirational children's story, inspirational teacher, Triumph oh, no, oh, no question. This is also an inspirational teacher film. A lot is going on here. Yeah, the, um, possibly even too much, even though it's quite a simple film. Um, but because some aspects of the plot seem to really fly over and, and um, you know, be hard to take in for me. Um, but also I, I would note this, uh, the subtitles on the copy of the film we got were pretty bad. And it's just yes, Mad there was grammatical errors yeah and they, they also were just quite unclear they seem to be designed to be as short as possible and maybe that's a literal translation of of yeah uh, yeah so see a farsi term for approximately right yeah I, i'm not not <laughs> i guess you would know if, it, if it's closer well if it's closer to 
like how Farsi is, is spoken generally, but um, it was not conveying enough detail to sound natural in English to me. Yeah, it, it, it kind of felt like this was the shortest possible route to convey the gist of what was said rather than the nuance of what was said. Yeah. I think that that's what the problem was. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't feel much watching this film, to be honest. I thought it was okay, but um, I thought it, it was very nicely directed. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, look, it, it, the, the director of this, Majid Majidi, um, yeah. he used to have his films play late at night on SBS all the time. Um, he was decried by the Jonathan Rosenbaums of the world as the accessible mainstream Miramax Iranian director in the 90s as opposed to the artsy Kiarostami Jafar yeah, I mean, approach. he broke out with the uh, Children of Heaven, right? Which was a massive, massive hit. I mean, everyone yeah, yeah. that film. But that, that, yeah, that, like that film, Color of Paradise, that sort of thing, they're so much more like the platonic ideal of an Iranian film, like minimal um, settings, minimal camera work, slow uh you know warm human angle comes out um when this started before his name i hadn't read that he directed it yet and before his name flashed on screen i was like oh who's this new director um you know yeah. digital handheld camera work like it's a born movie with the zooms and fast cutting and everything um yeah wow guys kept up with the times um the directing is good yeah directing, you're definitely in the hands of an old pro i think the directing is good my issue with it is that and it is certainly resplendent in the moments, but I think this is a film that in its design and the way it is staged and staggered is produced so much, is, is designed so much to produce an effect, but what so many American films are brought to do is to produce powerful moments. And there are a lot of good moments. Uh, my favorite Great visual moments. Uh, the scene where the children are climbing the gates of the school, incredible. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the digging scenes, um, some of the sequences at the turnstiles on the train. Um, there are some wonderful shots in this. But um, this film remains, remember, as having watched it very recently as a number of snippets as opposed to more of a case of whole. I feel this... I agree. And I, I go back to the 80s. I've heard to the Goonies earlier. It's not a film I actually like very much. Um, as I would say the same for a lot of the, those 80s films where it is of 80s kids get together. And with the exception of Stand By Me, these were also designed to produce aha moments um, to be incredibly marketable rather than be some sort of um, narrative thematic whole I think it does come together at the very end even though the ending is a bit obvious I think that was there needed to be I think more either more emphasis or a different angle if this is the way the plot was going to play out because it's it's so, so just kind of like a foregone conclusion it's like oh like you don't feel what I'm sure is meant to be a, like a deeper kind of moral um to the whole it was thing clear where this was going yeah um it, it is a very Hollywood film in some ways and yet very Iranian yeah. in others, right? It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, Majidi is doing some interesting things, not only in this film, I think in its, uh, later in his career, because his previous film was a Hindi language film, which I was not expecting. Oh, really? Yeah, so, and he made basically a grown-up version of basically uh, his first film, the breakout film. Interesting. Uh, Children's Heaven. But he made that in completely in Hindi, not knowing the language, which is also interesting. interesting. Uh, but he okay. seems to be very interested in uh, now social justice issues. He always was, of, I think, of his like, filmmaking. All of them, but now I think more so because more so, right. this film has basically all the all the child actors are basically 
crews from the street and they're being picked up and they're not camera ready essentially the but that's also really, the charm the main of the film. child actor is incredible in this he yeah. is really and good. Look, they, they, they feel like a gang they feel like they feel authentic and the main guy is really good he has an incredible face but he, he has this bit of a static performance throughout he has this amazing sad look that is basically but he keeps playing it every scene <laughs> the entire film yeah it's a little bit much like he's good it's just there's all I'm seeing in each scene. Well, that kind of gets at the greater problem with the film itself, which is, is I feel like it's a little bit cloying and manipulative and like continuing to hit this one kind of note. You will feel sad at the loss of, there's a child of innocence and you will feel sad at its loss. I yes, guess. I remembered it's relevant, but it's, a critic. Yeah, again, yeah. I, I refer to something like, it's unfair to compare this to films like Stand By Me, but it really pushes the, you will feel something for these children who will, and here are your, ascendant moments where you will have this crescendo of emotion yeah. as opposed to this slow burn. Again, we refer to Hollywood versus traditional and better Iranian filmmaking. That's right. I, I remember, um, I'm sure it was Rosenbaum, but I, some review, or, or it might've been of a movie he made in the 20, early um, 2000s or 2010s. I saw it about an ostrich farmer, I think. I can't remember much of it, but um, I think it was Rosenbaum reviewing it. He said something about how Majidi's films are too focused on moral instruction. You feel that yeah. in this in this movie. Around the time that I stopped following what he was doing um, up until catching up with him again with this movie, um, I remember that he'd made this Prophet Muhammad movie. Where yeah, that's Vittoro, God, yeah. Yeah, he got Vittorio Storaro to be the cinematographer. Um, yeah. You would need a great DP for that project because the idea was that light is always obscuring the Prophet Muhammad's face. Yeah. Um, interesting experiment, right? I haven't seen the film, but I'm very curious. And about I think that. the ostrich movie is Song of Sparrows. That's the one. That's the yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he always has very good visual sort of sense of how to actually construct scenes. That's it. He's an extremely beautiful. Technically, it's just that all his stories are sometimes. Uh, the problem he has is like his filmmaking sometimes gets obscured by the moral tale that he wants to tell which is how to be a good muslim and overpowers that's yeah. always what it's about yeah you know and like and the, the movies on the side of good which is you know can make for interesting art but let's just say that that kind of like fixed doctrine of like i'm going to to give you a moral is not always in service of dramatic complexity <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd refer to something like a separation of one of the great Iranian films of the past 10 years where it is highly morally instructive but that plays second fiddle to a surprising and dominant narrative and dramatic focus yeah um, Fahadi is very good at having a range of different characters of different stances and, and constructing drama out of that even Panahi's early films where he uses kids as basically mm. whether it's the the white balloon, white balloon or, yeah. or, or offside you know great moral films but the morality of the film isn't really overtaking the actual, you know, experience of cinema. No, and the I mean, message making is strong, but somehow, um, it, you know, I, I guess it's that he tries to go for less dogmatic kind of conclusion here. Yeah. Now, this is, this the, the ending of this is just, as Glenn said. And I didn't so appreciate, obvious. I didn't appreciate the dedication aspect. I'm like, it's so obvious this is what the film is about. He didn't need to dedicate it to, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, and, and it's something that we... Yeah. The moral of the story, like I'm going to go and talk about the White Lotus a little later, which deals with a moral subject, transactional relationships, which you don't often see discussed. And that there's a little level. This, as good as it is, is something that 
we know the moral of this. We don't, mm. we, it's, it, it's instructive from the beginning and for other, from many other films we've seen. Um, something I did like, however, and it, moreover in light of the horror that is coming out of Kabul and around Afghanistan right now, there is a huge focus on the Afghani community in Iran, yeah. uh, particular and Afghani refugee community in Iran uh, through the focus of the young woman. And I really liked that. Um, the film, I think, will be more relevant to, even more relevant than it would have been at the time of filmmaking to a current audience who are seeing what is unfolding. And I think it was a mature and good focus. So I, yeah, I like I, that. Yeah, I agree with that. And you're right. It's, it did seem very topical watching it now. I think there's going to be a lot more <laughs> Afghans in Iran, I guess. Well, Iran have closed the border as they yeah. have and and patrol it in the habits they have in the past. So that's another dimension. But yes, I, I believe there will be more, certainly there'll be films coming out focusing on what is currently happening and evolving in Afghanistan mm. and how the place in the region surrounding countries. They won't, they won't be I'm made glad to know some film, I'm glad to know some filmmakers have been able to escape uh, to safety in the last few days, which I was worried about. Uh, the filmmaker Sharbano Sadat, whose film premiered at the Sydney Film Festival, Wolf and Sheep. Uh, she was caught up in Kabul and she's been able to escape to France so with her family. So that's probably one piece of good news we can probably see. And she said in a statement that she's wanting to make films now about what's happened. So I guess it's going to be documented pretty soon. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so that is Sun Children. You're listening to Film Fight Club on 2CR with Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, the Rotten Neru. The next thing we're talking about, also from the Orleans International Film Festival, is Pickpocket. Yeah, the Gia uh, Jeanke's uh, debut, which was very much like a mix of Bresson and Godard, uh, early Godard. It's very French New Wave. Yeah, but it's also it, right? very Italian neorealism. Yeah. <laughs> it's... um. Very, nothing uh, really happens in the film if you think about it. No, like, that's it, true. It's it, about nothing. <laughs> it's so minimal. I found it hard to get into this, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah this is film was from 1997, but it comes to us in the newly restored, uh, restored version thanks to Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project and the Cinematheca yeah. Bologna, um, always doing their bit to restore cinema treasures um, and historically notable films. Oh. Jia is, of course, now uh, one of the most notable Chinese filmmakers. Um, and he especially broke out internationally with his next film, Platform. And uh, I think this might be one of the films that might also get affected by the censorship thing, because even though it plays out in a very minimal way, it is in the backdrop of the transfer of sovereignty of Hong Kong in 97. So there right. is some controversial element to that, even though it doesn't really play in the film, but has always... the political commentary is there, which might... No, I think this movie will be okay, because it passed mainland censors the first time, and uh, I'm pretty, you know... Jia has uh, has always been good at skirting the line as far as censorship goes, yeah. Um, but yeah, he makes him pretty. Uh... What what I see this film as it's basically starting of the collaboration between his DOP and himself because the visual composition of this film was amazing and beautiful. Apart from that, there's not much in this film. I'm yeah, I I, I thought it was okay. It's basically about as the title says, a pickpocket. Um, it's not that much, it's not much like Brisson's film, which is a much more moralistic yeah. kind of um, story. I, I think this is, you know, about a pickpocket and called Pickpocket in homage and has some aspects in common, but it's basically just showing a, a character who um, is a pickpocket. Um, is He's an interesting character in, in his detachment from, it's really, it's a character study. He's detached yeah. from everybody um, and, uh, 
he is detached from his basically uh his you know his close family members his friends society institutions it's basically man versus every other element yeah he, he, he doesn't fit in it's it's that kind of a film he's kind of inscrutable and doesn't show much emotion until halfway through so the whole time you're wondering what this guy's deal is yeah and uh um he, basically like angsty teenager that tantrum but, but he's like, like in his like 20s, right and the point is that people People are, are going on to have great jobs and getting married, etc. And he's this kind yeah. of loner pickpocket guy who keeps uh, running into trouble with the law. Um, yeah. Conceptually interesting, just studying this guy. But um, I found it too static, I guess. It, it created it's static. Intrigue, it's too it repetitive. The the kind of the kind of it keeps coming back to that same circle of like this person can't break that cycle. But there's nothing new to it. You've seen it in the first twenty minutes. The cycle keeps repeating with different uh, elements thrown in, with different right. kind of conflicts. But the conflicts aren't even that, yeah, know, they're, they're not heightened as such. No, it's, it's going for realism. Sense. But yeah. I feel like there needed to be either more aspects to this character or more dramatically interesting scenarios at a certain point. This this kind of worn out, this could be better if this was just a, a sort of elongated short, like an extended short, like of less than an, hour, than an hour so 45 minutes or something and this would have worked well or this character a part of a larger narrative multi-strand perhaps yeah but yep yeah, i mean it's still good it establishes the key players you know well directed relationships um, and stuff it, and you can see the early promise there yeah. yeah it's an interesting character that's about it yeah right. thank you so that is that is pickpocket in the last few minutes, we're going to talk about The White Lotus, which is now streaming on Binge. Excuse me to correct myself from earlier. It's become very popular in, um, in the very immediate short term. It has starring Jake Lacey, Alexandra Daddario, Steve Jean, Murray Bartlett, who I saw the other day. He's an Australian local and the accent is real. It's nice to see Australians on screen without having it being shut down. I'm sorry. Oh, it's an Australian. It also stars the promising young woman, a triple of Connie Bruden, Jennifer Coolidge, and Molly Shannon. I think more of a coincidence than anything else. It is about a retreat for rich people to Hawaii. We are told at the beginning of the series that a person has died at the titular resort, the White Lotus. And then we flash back one week to the beginning of the retreat for a group of people where we follow four different storylines from a family, the hotel manager, a couple, and uh, a lady who's quite wealthy played by Jennifer Coolidge. It's a classic bomb under the table situation. As said before, this is a show about transactional relationships and how race and class play into this. Um, and also particularly as regards the setting in Hawaii as elements of indigenous exploitation. I think the series errs a bit by not making the distinction as regards race and class when it comes to transactional relationships. However, I appreciate that the particular conflicts shown here are endemic to the particular setting and the setting is very well defined. The show is about white people, right? It's about the show rich, is about rich white, white people. It's about rich white people. That's fine. Being feckless and careless and um, entitled. So it's comedy, but there's also quite strong dramatic elements. And right. it's something that if anyone who's worked in the service industry can relate because there's a particular character who's just entitled and thinks he's on his honeymoon with his beautiful wife, but he wants the suite that he was promised, even though it wasn't as good as the suite they ultimately gave him. Everyone knows someone like this. I'm referring to the Jake Lacey character. He's great. I think he's the real pivot of the series. How many episodes is this? There are six. There are six hour long episodes. Okay. So it sort of fits the film Fight Club. <laughs> it's a long movie. 
it's a long movie. Yeah, this is this is something they could have made as a movie. I'm glad they didn't. They let the characters play out over each successive episodes. Uh, and it's nice to consume this as I did week after week after week. Um, each episode is a day in the life of this week. Therefore, I think it works quite well. I'm watching Chapel Wait in the same way as we'll discuss in a moment. So you were watching this show before the ending, which seems to have gotten a lot more people interested in this. The ending has absolutely got a lot more people interested. A lot of it was like a good Hitchcock film leading towards the end. What is going to happen? Who is, we're told someone's going to die. We don't know who it is. And I think it does stick the landing. I thought it could go one of two ways. It went the second way I thought it could go. I was still genuinely surprised at how it played out. And I can't talk about this without spoilers, but I like the way it played out because it shows such a strong sense of entitlement. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about White Lotus in the podcast. We're also going to be talking about Chapelweight and a number of Mythflix, Moon 66 Questions, Stray, La Civil, and Rock Bottom Riser. I'll also give for the internet crowd uh, my brief thoughts on the new Evangelion film on Amazon Prime. Fantastic. And please stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. Tune in next week where we're going to be going back to non-festival films just for the moment. We're going to be talking about Val, which is streaming Osa on Amazon Prime. And unironically, my most anticipated film of the year, He's All That, the spiritual, if not actual sequel to She's All That. Stay tuned for The Sonic Assassin. Have a wonderful night. Stay safe. This has been Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans of Right Their Room before Right Their Room explodes of laughter. Enjoy movies. Good night. And welcome back to Film Fight Club where we are talking... All things White Lotus. Yes, I am excited. Here's all that. It stars Rachel Lee Cook as the mom. Uh, I love that movie. I love even more the parody, not another teen movie, which may be the best teen movie of that era. What I'm going to say is, how far have the mighty fallen after Mips to He's All That? I mean, we are really the bastions of progress. What's to say this film won't be a masterpiece like He's All That? And moreover, no, no, let's I'm sure it's going to be a masterpiece. It's going to be like the Kissing Booth 1, 2, and 3. It's going to be one of the most popular films on Netflix or like Never Have I Ever. But does it deserve any kind of critical lens or appreciation probably oh, not but we still have some unwatched myth screeners so me and Farad will watch the love diaz movie and maybe we can review that if we can't yeah. as well if we can't the love diaz now he's all that he's a lot i don't one. think there's ever been a more fight club statement than love diaz now he's all that <laughs> that's a <laughs> <her> brand <laughs> Oh dear, oh no. Um, no, but like, I, I wrote back to the She's All That and it was very contemporary. Like there was all these great parodies of, I think the MTV show was called The Real World, I'm showing my age here. And this is going to be very much of the TikTok world. So yeah, it's it's modern, it's contemporary. I'm I'm keen. Yeah, He's All That. Yeah. Yeah, I just watched Josie <laughs> and the Pussycats for the first time, seeking of Rachel Lee Cook. She's excellent. All that. It's great. She is all that. <laughs> Fun movie, isn't it? Seen the it, it's so good. Um, I, I'm not sure if we'd spoke about this on or off air, but the scene where she wipes the cocaine oh, off yeah, the yeah, yeah. to reveal like the secret underground government controller is one of my all-time yeah. favorite gags. Hilarious. It's so perfectly Alan Cumming as well, his role in that film. I loved him. The smile, the the, the fourth wall breaks were just perfectly timed. Yeah. Uh, he's he's great in there. This yeah, actually, this may be his best role. It's the most perfectly suited to him. He was pretty good in the Spy Kids movies as well. Those movies are not good. I'm sorry, I'm going to die on that hill, but I can't stand those films.
Oh, come on. You guess is you're, worse. You, you, you're going to like go for She's All That, but not Spy Kids? Oh, come on. Uh, she's All That is a funny, light parody of teen movies, but also um, has real characters, which was entertaining. Spy Kids is a it's dumb action movie with bad exactly. CGI. It's amazing. It's, Spy Kids is amazing. And maybe this was my too cool for film school era and maybe they deserve to, I deserve to go back and re, they deserve to go back and be rewatched but I just never liked them when I was a kid I could not handle okay. Spy Kids wow. I wonder what Drew guys' other films I was into his actual movies whoa actual movies even as a, as a kid like Spy Kids I, I, I want to see From Dusk Till Dawn damn straight yeah it keeps, Netflix keeps recommending me From Dusk Till Dawn like I've seen it it's great all these films are great don't you want to watch it again, Glenn? The algorithm thinks you're interested. Yeah, it does. It does. You know what the algorithm thinks? Okay, I've never heard, I never knew, I never seen this film. I didn't know what it was about. Uh, Netflix keeps recommending to me The Girl Next Door. So I watched it last night, not knowing anything about it. It's mostly awful. What is Isn't, isn't that the Jennifer Lopez erotica film? No, it's Elisha Cuthbert and Emil Hirsch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about he falls for the pretty girl next door who it turns out is an adult film star. Um, The first act is kind of okay and actually has some nice romantic scenes and then just goes into full chauvinist territory. Okay. It's pretty bad. Just avoid. Like one of those by a bunch of dudes, dudes. And and I don't think aged well then. And certainly, I I think it was popular in the uh, during the first American uh, American Pie movie's time. Yeah, it's a bit after. It was a bit after. Like American, at least the f- I, I don't like the other American Pie films. The, actually, I didn't mind Airlines from American Union. The first American Pie film, there was actually reasonable arcs. They learned things that it's okay to not feel peer pressure. There was some incredible sexism. Um, the, all the stuff for the webcam. Apparently, and they, apparently they made a new one that came but out last the, year. Um, where they, stuff they, they, about. Uh, otherwise like there's some genuinely funny sequences in the first american pie i loved eugene levy in it like the, it, it is still one of the better teen films of that era again nothing on not another teen movie but the, i think uh they, apparently they made a new american pie film last year where they flipped the genders basically the same characters but what if they were female so we have a female version of stifler we have a female version of you know you get the one team. of the worst hollywood trends is the gender yeah. swap version it's like hey guys we... get excited but he's all that <laughs> I know. <laughs> See? Like, See? This is what's happening. This is what's happening. Keep the what same, if, if it was the same story, but... How can we use the same brand as a pre-existing thing, but appear to be keeping up with the times with female representation? Let's, you know, it's the, the worst compromise. Just yeah, nice I mean, that one objective... Was, um, book smart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. one objectified women. So why don't we objectify guys this time around? But, but Booksmart, even though it was, it was like gender swap, super bad, at least was not like super bad. At least it was Booksmart <laughs> and had some aspects that were directly about being, female friendship. And being mostly facetious. Yeah, yeah. We all are right now, but it's also kind of like- No, no, I, I think this is genuinely fair criticism here. Make original properties. Well. Cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, he thought that might be actually a decent film, but it's just that- <laughs> Maybe. Thank you, thank you for acknowledging. <laughs> I was trying to say that with a straight face, Chris. Come on. Uh, so um, The White Lotus, yes, that is on Binge right now. It's proved very, very popular. Um, Did you have more to say on it? Um, yeah, a couple, a few things. Um, one of the actually interesting major trends about it is that it really dives into issues of toxic masculinity. And I like that the series is mature enough to make, to 
to both depict and make a significant distinction between what is a more increasingly egregious forms of toxic masculinity and also issues of mental health that are regularly experienced by men as distinct, uh, which are important issues that need to be um, addressed and covered that men routinely and typically feel. Um, I like that there were four distinct stories that didn't feel that was overwhelmed. Again, if this was in a film, I think we could have just seen choppy editing to get everything packed in, but we were able to follow everyone with quite ease. I loved Britain's quite nuanced CEO of a tech company. I thought she was really good. I liked the daughter's arc and Dario's. Um, I think the key, again, with the key to the series is really the Jake Lacey character. Um, he's more clueless than he is feckless. And I think both the actor and the narrative get this and makes him more sympathetic than he otherwise could have been. I think that's really crucial to the appeal of the show. As said, the ending was good. Something that really frustrated me, me was the sound design. And there's a lot of repeated repetitive motifs. I hate the Boston legal approach to let's have want people to get upbeat now. So we just play the music whenever someone says something. I feel there's a lot of that in here, which could have been excised. Um, finally, there's a key scene in this where a character says two persons of uh, color are having a discussion and they say, these people, they're the people who screwed you over. And, and, the, and the response is, no, no, these aren't those people. And the other person says, yes, these are those people. This is a very important and a philosophical discussion to be had and that a lot is debated less maturely in a lot of cinema and film. I think how you fall on what, what side of the discussion or what you fall on will determine um, a lot of how you view the series. But I like that however you do fall on either side of that discussion that you can enjoy different dimensions thereof. I think this is a series that without being judgmental promotes debate and empathy on a lot of the issues discussed. And therefore, I quite liked it. I think it's a step above most, the vast majority of television that I've seen recently, and that is generally on. Um, not as good as a lot of the Mythflix we've covered because, hey, we've been spoiled for choice. But I thought it was good. I think it is justifiably um, getting a lot of good traction. I can see it getting a sequel with a new re resort and or a new bunch of people. It could happen. I don't know. But it was, a, um, I, it was six hours I mostly enjoyed. So that is The White Lotus. I'm not the Blue Lotus, um, sorry, as the tintinologist I am, I keep getting the two confused, but it is the White Lotus. The next film we are talking about is From Myth, Moon, 66 Questions. Yeah, um, this was very Greek New Wave, but quite a bit warmer. Um, the kind of post-Yogos Lanthimos um, era of Greek films with a lot of strange characters and awkward scenes being awkward and strange. This is basically about an estranged daughter coming back to look after her father who has an autoimmune disease. So he requires pretty close physical care. Um, and there's a bit of an abstracted narrative going on in the background as we find out a little bit more about what exactly caused the two to be so estranged. It's never directly clear, but there's enough here that you can infer and get the point of it. The main character is portrayed by an extraordinary actress and is a very strikingly weird character. We spend a lot of time in her in private moments, sort of like making voices to herself um, and acting things out. But she wasn't so off-puttingly weird as I found in a lot of uh, Greek weird wave, the characters to be, that I couldn't directly empathize with her. There's some um, very, very strong visual language in this film that situates you in the world of the characters. Um, and I found uh, it 
aesthetically interesting enough that it carried me through the sections where the drama was a little bit vague. Um, but I think this film succeeds more than a lot of these obscure um, extended shot film-esque uh, art house films you see playing at festivals because there actually is depth there that gradually comes to the surface and there's a surprising amount of warmth that gradually emerges um, in the relationship between these two characters. It's ultimately a, a very simple story about familial love that's been um, transfigured through this weird prismatic um, chopped up art, art film strategy. But um, yeah, I find it really interesting. It reminds me a bit of uh, Lynn Ramsey's first film, Ratcatcher. And it's a, a filmmaker who is known for very strong short films, um, exploring family relationships, making this kind of abstracted expansion of that to the feature length form. Um, yeah, she's clearly, as Lynn Ramsey was, a really strong um, visual director, really um, great at creating atmospheres. And I have a feeling she has a, a really strong future ahead of her. So yeah, this was one of the better films I saw at MIFF. And the next film also that was covered as part of MIFF was Stray. Yeah, um, I can never resist a good dog documentary. This is about the stray dogs of Istanbul. Um, it's a counterpiece, I would say, to the film about the stray cats of Istanbul from a few years ago, Kedi. Um, this is a better film in my eyes. Kedi was, uh, you know, very bourgeois documentary, I guess, showing you, you know, the upper class people in, in Istanbul, um, very like his, 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 how this is a cosmopolitan city and, you know, but all the cats are integrated into it, um, you know, by the numbers kind of boring this is like a cinema verite following dogs around the city watching how they get by um to me it was just, it's really interesting just like watching them go for a, a garbage bag in the middle of the street and find a bone and try and find a space where they can eat the bone i don't know if you love watching dogs you'll find interest in this the thing is um the, what makes it more interesting than Keddie, but also leans into it being a little bit heavy-handed. Um, dogs are, are protected in Istanbul now um, because there's been a history of so much violence uh, against them. Um, the the uh, counterpoint of Keddie is pretty clear because you know cats are given prized status in Islam, and uh, dogs are less so. A lot of people hate dogs, to be clear. Um, yeah, so this film, which I think is made by an American crew mostly, seems to be equating the stray dogs um, to refugees. Um, we spend a lot of time uh, spending with a group of Syrian children with nowhere to stay, um, whose lives interact intersect with the dogs and they want to look after them for a while. and. Um, if anything, I found this movie a little bit on the nose after a while. You know, it's very serious and it's about a very serious noble dog with a very sad face. <laughs> and it pushes this, this refugee analog, uh, you know, further than it needed to be, I think. Um, so it comes across a little bit as like moralizing after a while. But it is interesting seeing how um, the dogs are basically tolerated. They're, you know, they're, most, they're basically invisible to most people. Like you, you it, it's illegal to, to commit violence against them. So 
most people just ignore them, but there's groups of people who do their bit to make sure they've got a place to stay, you know, to make sure that they're, that they're looked after if they're sick or that they're fed if they, if they need to be. There's just enough people who care about doing the right thing for them to get by. Um, it, it, it's, it's a good film, but I'd recommend above it one from a few years ago from Chile called Los Reyes, which um, had a bit more humor to it. It similarly made it's the- an antenna from memory. It was an antenna, yeah. That film um, similarly made the connection between dogs and kind of down and out people. But, um, you know, those dogs were a lot more expressive. Um, the film spent a lot of time following like kind of like the whimsy of life and uh, um, more positive interactions with people and while also containing social commentary and sadder aspects. And I found that movie just a lot less heavy handed and a lot more fully featured and fully developed as a narrative. So I'd recommend that one. But um, this is still some extraordinary documentary filmmaking. The final I don't want to spoil it because it's the best part of the film if you're going to watch it. But the final scene that plays over the credits is, is pretty extraordinary. Um, I, I'm going to tell you guys when we stop recording. I just want to talk about that aspect of the film, really. But uh, it, would be, it would be wrong to give it away. Stray is still a good documentary. It, it knows it, it's time to end in about 70 minutes. Um, there wasn't like much more they could do. That we otherwise <laughs> see. Yeah. Like The Girl Next Door, which went on for two hours. God damn. Right. Damn. Uh, a lot of yeah, it's a big issue. Many films overstay their welcome. It's nice when it's it's okay for a film to be sixty minutes. Honestly, yeah, that, it's true. Yeah. Oh, it was. I think it was the boy next door. Sorry, I was just confusing with the Jennifer Lopez one that came out recently. Which I was about that, that, and I think yeah, that was called the boy next door, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Also a horrible film, but just you know titles. Oh yeah, the girl next door. Like it could have been good if in the had not been for the sexism. I mean, Emil Hirsch was great. And so is Large Cuthbert, but yeah. Uh, so the next film, the next what we're talking about, um, Better, is currently streaming on Stan. The first three episodes have been released. They're being released weekly. And that is Chapel Wait. It is a Stephen King adaptation starring Adrian Brody. He plays a whaler in the early 18th century who relocates his three children from the Sea of Japan to following the death of his wife and their mother to a creepy New England mansion. Which are there is, any others in Stephen King stories? Are there only uh, mansions in New England in Stephen King stories? Are yeah, they ever I, not creepy? Like, I liked the series a lot, except it made me think, uh, there's after like watching the Sleepy Hollows of the Water, we watched that recently. Is there, are there any, were there any towns in early 19th century New England that just weren't creepy? Where things just like went on as normal where things were like there was disease and there was some poverty but everything was kind of a-okay people got on i, I don't know i don't think so also also, also by whaler do you mean like a masteroid crying because i think edwin brody is a very good whaler he whales quite beautifully when he wants to no i mean and this is like kind of glossed over a bit but this is in the era pre uh finding oil on the ground so that he uh, went to see Japan to kill whales. Um, as oh God, actually, okay. Yeah, he was the captain. As a captain, you could have your kids and your wife on the ship. It, it actually reminded the beginning of my money being a bit of a very underrated film in the heart of the sea, which aside from the beginning in epilogue and prologue was a very, very enjoyable classic style adventure. Anyway, this is not that. This is a sad <laughs> film about a sad series about uh, every town in New England, apparently, which was always creepy. And they go to this town, they inherit, he has a 
he had a terrible childhood with he knows that um he's he's uh we see an epic prologue where a rather terrible event happens with his father which continues to haunt him and we know that he had a falling out he that side of his family had a falling out with his side of the family however he's inherited this mansion and this estate however the townsfolk in preacher's corner do not trust him or his family because of the history with his family and therein there's a neat metaphor for racism because his kids are the only, so some of the only, because we'll get to that in a moment, persons of color in the whole town. It's a good metaphor, which isn't overly belabored. It is made a little obvious at times. Um, the person who holds the ledger who works in Boons, that's the Andrew Brody character, Sawmill, is also a person of color and a bit of the um, racism that plays at, at, his, at the time and still um, an issue, obviously very much an issue in America, plays out um, through that character as well. I think that was quite well handled. Um, there are a lot of horror motifs that you've seen, some that you haven't. The worms are the choice here. They're pretty good. They're pretty eerie, but not like in your face eerie. It doesn't mistake sheer, let's get in your face. Let's uh, throw this at you for actually trying to be unnerving. There's a really good twist on the creepy girl with the long unmatted unmatted hair and the white dress it's established when we see this figure that it's not actually a fantasy that this is happening in real in real life repeatedly but we don't really know what the context is or why it is happening certainly we know it may be connected to an illness that is um pervaded the town and, the, and this is something i'm actually quite curious about as is the uh without ruining anything the um shadowy figure which seems to be related to um, some classic Gothic symbolism, which I quite like. So I will obviously see where those elements go. There is a Hallow's Eve, like a early Halloween. Um, the production, this and the production design of the town, I find is quite standard. What elevates this is the Brody performance and, and the mystery story itself. Look, it's just Good, reliable king Stephen king annotations are good because they come from very good extremely good source material and you have a actor who's never given a bad performance at the front of this film i it there are bits there are a couple of moments where i feel in the hands of a with less competent director and actors it could have verged into comedic territory just because we've seen this creepy town so many times before but it never goes over that precipice it is predominantly scary and eerie and I'm enjoying it without being just too there's more of an emphasis on the drama than the horror which is something I prefer and I'm enjoying it I'm going to keep I'm going to keep watching it it's something I like that it's coming out bit by bit by bit um it wasn't made to be binged it was made to be enjoyed in succession like a classic serial like most good horrors are and that is Chapelweight which is now streaming on Stan and the next thing with film we're talking about is Rock Bottom Riser yeah, um, I had to watch something experimental during MIF, and uh, you know, it's it's part of the territory of the festival. This is described as like a, a psychedelic, um, free associative essay film exploring Hawaii. I was really on board at first with sequences showing the flow of lava, um, the proximity of lava to civilization in Hawaii, which is really quite incredible. Um, the formation of new land masses under the sea and the ways that the um, the roads have been disrupted sometimes by volcanic activity all of that is great um, the transition into it becoming more than kind of a, a landscape film I don't think was so well handled um, it, it you know when things are just like 
for lack of a better word, artsy, and it's just a turnoff. Like we spend six minutes- You will appreciate this as cinema. Yeah, we spend six minutes watching a lecture about, um, you know, very scientific lecture that is not that interesting. Um, you know, uh, sequences are allowed to play out Very well Anne past. Rand. Yeah, things are allowed to play Sorry, out well past their expiry date. Like, um, this is, we're watching a scene of people in a classroom um, discussing, and uh, I can't even remember what they were discussing now, but it, it turns into a montage with a song, and it, it goes on for like the whole length of the song. And it, I was thinking, like, end the scene. There's no reason for this. Um, but, you know, there was some incredibly cool footage of volcanoes and some, it becomes about um, the telescopes and uh, in Hawaii and um, regional, you know, opposition to them from the indigenous tribes for disrupting their mountains, essentially, and the, the significance the mountains have, um, which I, I found interesting, but I know it would be against the point of making a, a weird um, video art-esque festival film, but I would have preferred a more in-depth exploration of those issues um, or a more tangible trajectory to those themes. I guess I'm just a pleb um, who was outsmarted by this film. So before we go on to the next film, <laughs> uh, to note something I didn't actually mention about White Lotus, which is also set in Hawaii, is that there is a particular storyline which does delve into um, issues of how indigenous people have been treated by people who have invaded and taken over the land and indigenous exploitation. And this is arguably, I think, the best element of the show plays out in a way that was genuinely surprising and genuinely cutting. Hmm. Like that is, of all the things I remember from this, notwithstanding the ending, it's that. So right. I give credit where credit's due. Uh, next up, La Civil. Yeah. Um, I'll go in brief on this because I have to be honest, I didn't finish this film. I meant to, uh, I had 30 minutes left in it and I just, I was sick of it and I had other stuff to do. So I thought I'll get back to it later. And then later on I watched other films and then I ran out of time when I guess I could have found the time if I really tried, but it shows my, my lack of investment in this. This I found to be like misery porn of the lowest order. Uh, this was a- To be clear in festivals, it's okay because you watch so many films, this happens. Yeah. yeah. And especially with the timer, like we were cut off at midnight, like Cinderella, myth. Yeah. Um, but I, I just didn't care. You know, this is a long movie. I watched more than a hundred minutes of it. Um, Where is when it I set? Said, sorry? Where is it set? Okay, so this is in Mexico. Okay. Um, this was funded, oh, sorry. It was produced by uh, a lot of art cinema, Darlings, um, Mike, Michelle Franco, who I guess is less of a darling, but uh, Christian Mungio, I think, and the Darden brothers all produced it. Man, some scam was must have been executed to pull all these people in. There's basically nothing to this. It's so by the numbers. And uh, to me, it seemed like a movie that's designed for foreign sales. It's got um, some, you know, it, it's, it's about the cartels, right? And it's about a mother who will stop at nothing to rescue her daughter from the cartels. It's instantly sellable as like a Mexican export to international art film audiences. But it's just reveling in how bad and sad everything is um, to the extent that I didn't really see, feel any life 
Um, the whole thing felt extremely familiar to me. It's basically like handheld camera work following this mother while she, um, you know, she tries to track down after her daughter's kidnapped. She tries to track down cartel people. <laughs> she follows them around. Um, she finds information which allows her to join a uh, police team. Um, so we're riding around. I know exactly. So like I'm she, just, it's just radio, but I, I just did a like weird look at Chris, not at Chris. Raised eyebrows. Yeah, I, I questioned like it's basically it's like, oh, you have you've given us this good information. Cool. You can ride along. Why would they allow that? I, yeah, I, I also, am I, is this really what, like, I didn't buy into it either. Breaking but, Bad at least had a plausible reason why Walter would go along with uh, Hank for the first episode. Like, that that I kind of bought. Yeah, so it's just a, a tour so that we can see how, get this, guys, sometimes the highly militarized police in Mexico can be as bad as the cartels. Ooh, some cutting insights here. Um, but it's like, you know, you get to see the corpses in the morgue and you get to see people being beaten by the police and you get to see the mutilated bodies hung up in places and you get to see the the tragic relationship this woman has with her estranged partner and you get to feel the misery and it's all grimy and, and Mexico is a sad place, guys. No, I really didn't like this. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how it ends. Maybe there's some huge redemption in, in the ending. I doubt it. But it seemed so insistent on being like a hard-hitting um, expose of human misery that it didn't allow for much life. And on top of that, it, it just felt familiar. I've seen all of this before. You know, I've seen all these scenes before. It's, it strikes me. i am watched a lot of films with Slockdown. It's number 87. Two of them have been have evoked exactly what you've described Chris one is a Tom Cruise film from 83 losing it where these teenagers go to Mexico and it's their playground and they'd not care and everything there is dangerous especially if you're a non-Mexican not if you're not Mexican excuse me but the other one I saw more recently I was on a Stallone fix I saw Rambo Last Blood to complete all my Rambo watches and this one it's the worst one he goes actually yeah it is this is the Trump one right this is the Trump one where he goes, he, he goes to Mexico to rescue his ad an adopted child, effectively. And it's every, the, the police are bad and won't help you. The cartels are bad. People are bad and everywhere. I appreciate there is a lot of crime in Mexico. It is a very serious thing. However, um, a lot of American and otherwise now as it appears European cinema treats it in a from a, a very singular lens and as a static in a static non-representative way which is a big problem i'd like to see more films that are actually representative of nuances there and what mexico is really like even with regards to the cr criminal dimensions yeah um, i'm not denying that the the cartel are horrible by the way um or yeah, these, the police, are, these are bad guys yeah or that the police are horrible in their dealings with them i'm and i know it's, it's a scary and serious issue and it is worthy of cinematic storytelling but I didn't feel any noble goals coming from this film, to be honest. I found it quite ugly. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember Sicario back in the day was good. Sicario was better. Yeah, Sicario was great. I um, hate to say America did it better, but they did. Um, to note something about particularly egregious about Rambo, Last Blood. I'm curious about Rambo. Well, look, it had the setup is she goes down, to, she's a... Mexican background she goes down there for the first time in her life to see her estranged to find her estranged father and I thought okay so 
Okay, this is a minor discussion of minor plot points, minor spoilers for the first extended act. She goes down there and I think, okay, so the father is going to, I, I knew the plot was about a kidnap plot. They're holding her. I thought the father or someone connected to him or someone who otherwise connected to her, who she thought may have been her father, but may have been wrong, was going to exploit her and kidnap her. And like, okay, so this is a, um, a little bit um, improbable, but still plausible at plot. That's uh, it does sadly happen, but no, that's not what happened. She sees the father. The father's like nothing to do with you. She goes to a club. It's a first night out clubbing in Mexico. She's eighteen, and she gets taken by the cartels. What's strange about this is this film had a more plausible, more reasonable setup for why Rambo would go down and try to rescue her. But then it goes into, no, no, no. If you go down to Mexico, like Tom Cruise and losing it, you're going to get screwed over and the criminals are just going to be there for you because you are, because um, you're an American or, mm. or, or from somewhere that's not Mexico. And right, right. It, of all the egregious things about that film, that was just the most thereof. Like, like why? Why? You had a... Where you had a you had a bet you had an out you had a better way to deal with this, why? Mm. And it just plays into prejudice. Right, right. Uh, before we wrap up, since we've been covering you know stuff we've been watching, and I know there's been a flurry of interest from it all over the Twitter sphere recently, I thought I'll give you my thoughts briefly on Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 Thrice Upon a Time. Uh, the entire rebuild of Evangelion film series is on Amazon Prime now, uh, which, you know, I think the 13th of August was when they released it. Uh, lots of online attention again. Evangelion is an anime show that was very formative for me and a lot of other young males in the uh, late 90s, I would say, going into early 2000s was its heyday of popularity. And there's been a remake series of four films trying to tell the story of the TV show in a different way. Now that it's over, I have to say that the whole thing just feels completely artistically unnecessary. Um, and like the George Lucasization of a really uh, classic series. To be, to be fair about this George Lucas comparison, um, this is better than the Star Wars prequels. You know, it's, it's better written and it's better directed. Um, but the Star Wars prequels, I think, had more artistic integrity. Uh, I really don't see the need for telling this story again. Basically, um, the, the show is famous for its lack of closure and its strange and abstract and uh, question-raising ending. And the, the entire purpose of this film series, and especially this last film, seems to me to tell the story again, but this time with you know, an ending that gives people closure. And I really wonder why people need closure from fictional stories. But this has been interpreted a lot as um, as medical revolutions, right? Yeah, this has been interpreted a lot as, by people as meta commentary from the creator of the show, Hidekiano, who's famously um, ambivalent about the the fandom, um, telling them, you know, go out and live your life, don't get too obsessed with anime, <laughs> detach good yourself. Lesson. Sorry, good lesson. It is a good lesson, but I feel like. Um, I don't know, the idea that, that you need to be given closure to do that, to me is kind of like counter to what makes art interesting. I'm not saying I'm against unambiguously happy endings or closure, but I feel like all the, the things that enrich our lives and giving us something to think about 
um, giving us something to discuss, tend to open to end with a little bit of ambiguity. This film is extremely rushed. It spends about an hour um, giving characters development that's been missing in the first three films of this series and been sorely lacking in comparison with the pacing of the TV show. Um, and then the, the last 90 minutes of this film is uh, in a rush to give every single character um, as neat and tidy a resolution as possible. Um, and even though some of these scenes are, are well-written, well-directed, um, well occasionally quite touching, to me, it just starts to feel like it's too much, it's too happy, it's happening too quickly, um, it's, it's too neat, and I wasn't convinced. Uh, if you don't know what Evangelion is, it's about robots fighting aliens, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's better than Transformers. It's much better than Transformers. In brief, um, the action was fun to watch, even though it was total nonsense. The whole thing is anime nonsense. Um, it, it doesn't make much sense on a plot level. Uh, the, I don't understand why people have been phrasing this. It's like, if, if it gives me a happy ending, I can forgive that it, it basically makes no sense. You know, it's like, it's like it totally ends justifies the means approach to storytelling, but it's an onslaught of CGI. Um, it is horribly anime in the, the shameless way that it exploits sexuality of its female cast um, in a way that, that the original ending of the show, uh, the, uh, the End of Evangelion, which is on Netflix, um, did not. Yeah, I don't know. I could I could talk about this this movie for hours, but it's the end of an episode of Film Fight Club. I'll just say that at the end of the day, um, Hideki Anno is a fine director. His last movie, Shin Godzilla, was really good. Um, yes. He should have, yes. Yeah, yeah, he should have been working on original projects instead of this. At the end of the day, um, even though there's positive aspects to the whole thing, I feel like this was territory that was covered. You know, and and more than that, this was a show that was deeply personal to its creator um, and the specific mind state there in 25 years ago. Um, going back now that he is in a different place in his life, um, feeling you know detached from all of that is a fool's endeavor. I think um, I really don't understand what the point of this was now that it's all said and done, except for uh, we can go back and add CG George Lucas style and we can make some money. Um, like the, so yeah, the Star Wars prequels comparison is appropriate. What I would recommend instead of this is that Amazon Prime put up a documentary in two parts that goes for nearly two hours on Hideki Anno and the making of this film, going into his depression and his struggles to just get it over the line and his clear lack of inspiration, which explains a lot about this film and is also much more interesting. So if you, you look up Evangelion on Prime, um, you know, I, I, I won't tell you not to watch this film, but I will tell you, watch the Hideki Anno documentary. Really interesting. Anyway, that's the movie. And that's Film Fight Club. So we'll be back next week talking Val and he's all that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the ideas, ideas, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He is all that. Yeah. In the meantime, someone can explain to us how TikTok works because I, I'm just, I, I get it, but I, I don't get it. Well, I might have to get TikTok for this episode. Oh, yeah, Addison Ray. We have to star. radically condense our She's a TikTok star. One minute. 
Hmm. We have to radically condense our episode to a one-minute diatribe, and not an hour. Do we have? To, how do we? How do we condense things to nuanced commentary to one-minute blocks? Like, how do we? You just actually, play some there... background. You play some background music. You start dancing, and you point at things, and text comes up, and that's it. Like, I actually, am curious. I I don't know about the extent. I mean, obviously, like social forums, like Twitter, to some extent, Instagram, obviously Facebook. There is quite an active film critic community i'm wondering to what extent that is active on tiktok i don't know i don't have tiktok look twitter is great mainly because i've only exclusively dated people from twitter that's all (laughs) i have conflated my social media i think i think there probably is a film community on tiktok because everything's on tiktok but it goes into the broader thing and maybe i'm being a cynic here of do the tiktok generation actually care that much about movies yeah what are they if they're not marvel they probably don't there was an amazing story about all the famous directors' kids who had adopted TikTok and used to put their parents in it. I think Del Toro's daughter is actually quite popular on TikTok. Yeah, right. There's and Scorsese of... as well. Yeah. All right. Um, that, that, that's that's pretty great. You know, Del Toro's... And amazing editing on some of the TikTok videos I've seen gone viral. The transitions are amazing. Hmm. I was going to say, you know, uh, Del Toro would have been an interesting person to make his version of La Seville because his parents were famously kidnapped by the cartels. Right. And James Cameron paid the ransom. This was in the in the 90s. What a legend. I know, yeah, what a legend. James Cameron, what's what are you he's making five Avatar films now? That's yeah, he's uh, deep in post-production on Avatar two and three at the moment. And four and five, I think, are at a, a break in production. I think they've entered production but won't be finished until we see how the box office for Avatar two goes. I could just imagine James Cameron having like this editing suite in this uh, subterranean water-filled cave lair yeah. where he's cut off and there's like several feet of metal between him and anything that and any outside pressure. And he's just sitting there editing with all these reels. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just know that's exactly what he's doing. And he comes up for air like every three months to just see, okay, COVID's still here, great, going back down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's happy to be in New Zealand right now. If he is there, I'm not sure if he's gone back to uh, Los Angeles, but I imagine he's probably still in New Zealand. But um, so you know, yeah, uh, I'm I'm keen for the Avatar sequels. I'm keen. Like the production, I didn't like the story, but the, it's Fern Gully. But the production design was incredible. That's it. And you you always know that James Cameron's going to direct well. He's going to deliver a visually impressive action film with the old school way. Avatar delivered in space in the action. Um, it it was just everything else I was disappointed about. Unobtainium. Yeah. Jake Sully. If this is Australian. Again, yeah. again, I'm fine with those seeing Australians. I just wish they were in better form. Australian accents were accompanied by better performances. Yeah. Speaking of Australian accents, uh, Carl McLaughlin is in Sydney doing hotel he quarantine. Is. And yeah. he's doing a bunch of hilarious updates where he's trying to learn Australian via uh, Twitter updates. It's, it's, it's quite funny. It's, it's nice seeing him here. It's very wholesome. But looking at his uh, Twitter feed, I couldn't help but think that he's now stuck playing his character from Twin Peaks, where it's all very um, like, gee whiz, wow, did you know the world is so wonderful <laughs> type persona? <laughs> the like very forthright, like authoritative delivery of positivity. Anyway, um, but no, Carl McLaughlin's a legend. I'm glad we have him here. Yeah, I look, I look forward to seeing him. Like if I, if I can see Murray Bartlett running around from White Lotus. I, I'd like to see Carl McLaughlin just like down the street one day. Like, mm-hmm. hey, dude. Hey, Carl. Hey, dude, mate. Stay away from me. I'm following COVID protocols. Oh, no. I, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm I'd recognize him any day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Give me a mask. Oh, dear. 
Well, yes, we'll be back with uh, Val Kilmer documentary, which looks great. And the buzz has been really, really strong. And I like it to be narrated by his son. Yeah, right. Interesting. And he's all that, which just, God, it's, it can't come soon enough. TikTok, we love you. Yeah, wh- wh- whatever you are. Yeah. Good night. Gen Z, we love you. Bye.